Please stand as I read to us Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is, as we just prayed, bless us from Zion. The blessing that especially is coming to us is to actually hear God's word. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us, in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and His Spirit is speaking this to us today because He loves us. Please be seated. So the day has finally arrived. The day they've been waiting for. The day that they hope to start experiencing what was Jesus talking about whenever he said, it will be better for me to go because if I go, then the Spirit will come. They've been waiting to see Why is it that the third person of the Trinity's arrival on earth is so good that it's even better than Jesus staying on earth? And our passage shows that the initial part of our understanding, the initial answer to that question, why is this so good for the Spirit to come? Our passage really emphasizes that this has to do with people and place. It has to do with people and place. That's why we see people in a place in verse 1 and people in a place in verse 5. That's what I want to direct your attention to, verse 1. You see how all the disciples are in one place. And then in the second half of the passage, it starts in verse 5. Every nation is in one city. Now, that's a very simple breakdown of our passage, but it 
it elevates in our mind a couple of important answers to the question, what is so significant, what is so good about the Spirit's arrival? And, and one uh, implication of this is, is, is that the Spirit coming affects every believer. That's in the first section. And then in the second section, the Spirit's arrival impacts the whole world. And so the sermon in a sentence or the gospel truth that we will consider this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is that the Spirit of Christ broadcasts the works of God to the world. The Spirit of Christ broadcasts the works of God to the world. We're going to see more about what the Spirit of Christ arrives to do in the rest of chapter 2, but this passage is really... Him coming, and when He comes, the first thing He does is broadcast the works of God to the world. Point number one, verses one through four, we see the disciples speaking in other tongues. Speaking in other tongues. Verse one, again, this is the day they've been waiting for, and we're told what day it is. It's Pentecost. Now, Pentecost means 50th. It means 50th. As in, this is 50 days after Passover. The celebration of God delivering Israel out of Egypt and passing over them in judgment that He gave to Egypt. 50 days after Passover, they celebrated Pentecost. It was the second of three festivals that God's people were to come to this city, Jerusalem, Two, every year in order to worship God. Pentecost was early summer. It was at the end of the grain harvest. And so, let's consider over the coming weeks, this day that has finally arrived. The day they've been waiting for, for the Spirit to come, happens in a time where God's people are worshiping Him for providing the harvest, for providing their food, for providing them life. That is the day that the Spirit of God comes to His people. And notice the disciples are all together in one place. I want you to hear the echo of Genesis chapter 11. That's why we read it earlier, for you to be able to hear this in Acts chapter 2. Now, like I said, Acts chapter 2 is so important, we will not be surprised even this morning, but in the coming weeks, to, to see that in this chapter is pulling together lots of promises of God, lots of the Old Testament promises that the people have been waiting for happening here. But I want us to, especially this morning, focus on Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 10 talked about all the nations being together. Chapter 11, they gather together in one place. They settle in one place in Genesis 11. That word settle is the same word that's used in chapter or verse 5 of Acts 2 for dwelling. Every nation in Acts 2, verse 5, has settled in Jerusalem. So I think Luke is trying to tell us what is about to happen has to do with what happened thousands of years before at the Tower of Babel. 
So Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, the Spirit's arrival. Notice it is seen and it's also heard. We, we're told by Luke it was like wind, it was like fire, and then there's these tongues that come. Let's take up each of those images. When the Spirit, verse 4, fills the disciples, it sounded like wind filling the house. Brothers and sisters, we need to take care that we are not bored with Acts chapter 2. You should be amazed when we read in verse 4 that God is filling believers. He's living inside of believers. And the sign of this is when filling a house. We should never get bored of this idea that Jesus Christ has cleansed us of sin and that that was necessary in order for us to be close to God. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, being close to God would be deadly. But look how close God can get. He fills His people. What we're seeing is something that the world has been waiting for all the way back since Genesis chapter 3. Something that the later prophets, like Ezekiel, would start to explain what it would be like if God overcame what happened in sin in Genesis 3. Ezekiel said that when God returns to a sinful people, that He would come like wind that blows on dead sinners. And when the wind of God blows on dead sinners, they are raised to life. And Jesus, when He was walking on earth in John chapter 3, He said when the Spirit comes, that's going to happen. The Spirit will come like life-giving wind. So verse 2 is what they've been waiting for since the beginning of time. What is it like for the Spirit to arrive? Well, it's like the wind filling a house, but it's also, I don't don't know how else to explain it, it's it's also like fire. Verse 3, fire that falls on disciples. And when God comes to His people, it's like fire. I mean, from the very first time that He came to His people. In Exodus chapter 3, He came in a burning bush to Israel. Do you remember the point of the bush that was burning but was not consumed by God? Moses sees something he had never seen before and he wants to look at this bush that is burning but it's not consumed. And the point when God says, I am who I am, is that God does not depend on anything for his life and therefore he comes as a fire that is not using the branches for fuel. And is not consuming the branches, but it's, it's still living there while, it, while He's burning. In other words, fire, when God comes, is communicating that God is pure energy. He is pure power. 
And so back in Exodus, he said to his insecure Savior, remember how Moses was called to save God's people, to rescue them from Pharaoh? And Moses said, I can't do this. How can I do this? He said, the way that little old you can force big bad Pharaoh to do what he would never want to do is not because of anything in you. It's because I will be with you in power. Just remember the bush. In other words, the fire reminds us that God never absorbs our power. He never relies on our strength. He supplies our strength. He is the source of power. And Acts 2 is teaching us when the Spirit arrives, we're expecting He's going to give life because of the wind. And we're also expecting because of the fire, He's going to give power. And that's what we see. Verses 3 and 4. We see why the Spirit's fire falls on the disciples in the form of tongues. Because speaking is the result of those other signs. The promise of giving life and the, pro- and the supply of power are all for them to speak. Now, it's going to take the whole chapter of Acts chapter 2 to explain the sights and sounds of Pentecost. We're going to take several sermons to go through it. But these verses affirm what we were expecting back in chapter 1, verse 8. When the Spirit comes, He will empower you to be My witnesses. So when the Spirit comes, Jesus sent His Spirit to give His witnesses words that we're going to expect later are going to end up raising the dead like life-giving wind. And, and, and we're, we're expecting that the Spirit, like divine fire, is going to give them, supply them energy and power for all of these miracles we're about to witness to happen. Verse 4 says, The Spirit gave them what they could not have on their own. He gave them utterance. Here it's the ability to speak in other tongues or languages that they did not know. So Spirit's coming in. He short-circuits the whole Rosetta Stone you know, kind of process. And He just takes these people who only speak what they speak and He, and he makes them speak what they don't speak. The Spirit of Christ broadcasts the works of God to the world. And then point number two Uh, after we hear the disciples speaking in other tongues, point number two comes in verses 5 through 13, and all the people are hearing in their own language. When the disciples speak in other tongues, everyone around them hears in their own language. Now, how are we supposed to react from verses 1 through 4? What I've been praying for, and when I... I beg the Lord now to prevent you from experiencing in verses 1 through 4 is boredom. They weren't bored in verses 5 through 13. They were totally confused. You see that? 
just repeat it over and over. Verse 6, the multitude comes together at that sound that they heard in verses 1 through 4, and they are bewildered. Verse 7 repeats this again. They are amazed and astonished. Verse 12 then says the same thing. They were all amazed and they were perplexed. There is a power that the Spirit gives that is perplexing to people who have never seen this before. And and so ultimately, because they're so confused, that's their main reaction. They ask these two questions. Verse 7, you see this. Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And then verse 12, they ask another question. What does this mean? They are confused. And there's something really good about their confusion that if we're going to understand the wonder of Acts chapter 2, it has to fall upon us. But there's also something they don't need to be confused about and you don't need to be confused about when when it comes to the Spirit making people speak in tongues. There's no need to be confused about what tongues are in the same way that some people, many people, are confused today. Notice the Spirit gives the disciples the ability to speak in languages they did not know. That does not mean that tongues are gibberish. They didn't know them. But they start speaking something and other people know them. It's not this unknown alien language. These are human languages. Verse 5, look, here's the point. The Jews from every nation under heaven are living in Jerusalem. And then verse 8, they are hearing in their own language. What are they hearing in their own native language? From where they were born, now they've moved to Jerusalem. The disciples are preaching, verse 11, the mighty works of God in their own tongues. In other words, they they come together and they're only expecting Greek. They're in Jerusalem and, and the Jews are speaking Greek because Alexander conquered long ago and they're all speaking Greek. They're not expecting to hear Egyptian. I'm from Egypt. Why why am I hearing Egyptian here? And why am I hearing that here? In my language, I've never heard anyone talk about how great God is and how God, our God, can do what no one else can do. I've never heard it in my heart language of Egyptian. That is what confuses them. The Jews who were born in all of those nations listed in 9 through 11 were hearing spirit-filled disciples praising God. You only have this might. Only you can do these things that you do. And they're hearing it in these languages that were foreign to the speakers, to the disciples. But they were native languages to the hearers. Each one of them gets to hear about God's work in their language. I hope this is starting to settle upon you when it just keeps on saying how confused, how perplexed, how amazed and bewildered they were when this happens. They were amazed and confused. What's confusing is not what our tongues... What's confusing is how could something this amazing happen? 
Look at who's speaking, verse 7. It's the Galileans speaking Asian. It's blowing their mind because they know who the Galileans are. They're that group of clods in the nation of Israel. They're uncultured. The Galileans? This would be like how the world views Americans, right? Poorly, because we only speak one language and we only have to speak one language, right? This is how they looked at Galileans. This is what's amazing is that they are speaking all these cultures, heart language. What's amazing wasn't just that everyone heard about God. The Jews are used to hearing things about how God is the only God. Their God is the only God. They're they're used to hearing the mighty works of God in Greek. It is when they hear about God in other languages at verse 12, they say, what can this mean? What is God doing now? And you see in verses 12 and 13, there's two different kind of conclusions to that question. What is God doing here? We, we know there are two different conclusions because verse 13 starts with the word but. But others. The people in verse 13 disagree with the people in verse 12. Verse 12, there's a group of people who are hearing this who are faithful. They, they, they're filled with faith in God. They're, they're they're understanding that some God is doing something and I, I'm amazed by it and I'm impressed by it in all the right ways. But verse 13, the confused condescend. These are people who are not inclined to credit God with good things. And they experience this thing that they have not seen any ever happen. And they come up with some, something that makes sense to them. They say, this, what this means is the disciples must be drunk. Well, how should we respond? What should we do with the amazing power of Pentecost? And I suggest that the clue for what we should do is our connection to Genesis 10 and 11, to the Tower of Babel. I think I'm on good grounds for that. It doesn't just remind me. There's some similar things there. The word confuse in our Acts chapter 2, verse 7. The word confuse is the identical word in the Greek Old Testament for what God did. Hear this again from Genesis chapter 11. Whenever God sees all of humanity who exists to spread out to spread the glory of God when he sees them settling together and building up a tower to heaven to make a great name for themselves. God says this, listen, Genesis 11, verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do in their rebellion." And nothing that they propose to do as rebels who are united will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. That's that word that's also in Acts 2. Confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Humanity 
was made for this purpose. Listen to me. You exist. You breathe for this purpose. And that is to fill the world with the glory of God. To spread the knowledge of Him being the only God. And Him doing things that are amazing that no one else can do. Babel is called Babel because their words would like babble, babble, babble. I mean, the, the word in Hebrew is, is, they couldn't, it's gibberish. They couldn't understand one another anymore. They had these different languages that only some of them would understand. And it's called that because God was judging humanity for refusing to do what they were called to do. He confused their language so that they would find somebody who understands me. They would huddle together and they would get away from those people who, who speak a different language. And they would scatter. He's forcing them to scatter. The first way we should respond when the Spirit gets the Word of God to the world... That's what what is being hinted at here in in Acts chapter 2 is God's Spirit is going to get God's Word to the world. And He's starting with the Jews. That's what Acts 1-8 told us. You're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to take the Word into all nations to the end of the earth. When the Spirit of God gets the Word of God to the world, we should respond in marveling and being amazed at His might. At His power, the fact that God's Word can be heard in every nation's language is a mighty work of God. And we come to this passage and we just expect it. This isn't new to us. We need to make it new again. This is brand new. When God's Word goes to every nation under heavens in their language... That is a mighty work of Christ through His Spirit that was not done before. That may take some work for you to marvel at that because we are surrounded by people who only speak one language. We can go to Dallas or wherever and there's people who speak different languages. There's only one language here and it's Texan. Thank you very much. We only have one language here. This may take you some work by God's grace to get... Because we've never experienced, never experienced what those Chinese believers recently experienced. When they, for the first time, had God's Word. You saw that video, they're just amazed by this gift to finally have God's Word in their language. It is the might of God after Christ finishes His work and sends the Spirit to actually get His works in the language of people outside of the language of the Jews. The second way we should respond is not just to marvel at the Spirit's might, but it's to marvel at Christ's mercy. Christ's mercy. What motivates God to exercise His might is His mercy. So, that's what we saw, right, in Genesis chapter 1. God sees humanity 
united together in rebellion, and God says, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they cannot continue to rebel together against me. I want to limit their rebellion against me. I don't want them to keep on going this way. And so he does what only he can do. He goes down there and he teaches all these people different languages that they did not know before. Causes them to speak completely differently and not understand what they had said the sentence before. God's justice repels rebels. God in his justice sees their sin and rebellion and he spreads them all out. Babel, what that means, what I hope you can understand, is that when God judged them, it meant that only one of those nations was going to hear from him again. And all the rest were not going to hear anything about God until Acts chapter 2. God's mercy moves God's might. He scattered them to keep them from strategizing together in sin, from growing in rebellion against Him. Believer, we have no idea what sin And therefore, what scattering God, by His mercy, has interceded to stop you from doing. He is filled with mercy. I remember very clearly when I was not a Christian, I was a teenager. I don't remember exactly the age I was. I had this bizarre experience one morning when I woke up. I woke up and I was about to get out of bed. And I don't know if I was going to, like, pull the sheets off or what with my right arm, but I, I couldn't do anything with my right arm. Um, I was telling my right arm to do whatever I was telling it to do, and it wasn't moving at all. And I sat there. And I'm telling you, 15 years old, I was not a Christian, and the Bible says that a non-believer's mind does not work right. I was sitting there trying to conclude, what is going on? I'm telling my right arm to do this thing. And I, I had in the realm of possibility that in the middle of the night, my arm disappeared. I'm telling you, at 15 years old, I, the, the view of the world that I had at that moment allowed for, I, I, I just concluded, I thought, well, I guess, I guess you can lose your arm in the middle of the night and not know about it. And then I got up to, to get on with my life and it swung, it swung around I had been laying on it, I guess, all night long or whatever, and all the blood wasn't going to it. And it literally was not responding to anything I was telling it to do. I tell you this because everyone has a view of the world. And your view of the world determines what you think is possible. And there are things happening in Acts chapter 2 that these people did not think was even possible. They, They know a world only with these confused languages. It's normal in a fallen world to have English and French and Swahili. It was not normal before that, before Babel. Languages did not exist. Nations did not exist. What Babel teaches us 
And what we need to be reminded of is not everyone can hear from God because not everyone obeys God. When they stopped obeying God, they stopped hearing from God. Most of the world, except for one nation, these devout Jews in verse 5 understand this principle. When you leave God's word, you lose God's word. And you need to understand that's a principle still at work today. If you hear God say, fill the world with my glory, and you refuse to do it and make a name for yourself, he's going to stop speaking to you. They know that. They understand that. God does not speak in Egyptian. That's the world they know. So when they hear it, what, what is going on here? We're hearing about the mighty works of God in our own languages, which is not Hebrew and Greek. We should marvel at the mercy of Christ. Right after these Jews in Jerusalem conspire to kill Jesus, Jesus says, look at what they've done. I've seen what they've done. Come and go down there, but don't scatter them in judgment. Speak to them in mercy. Mercy is motivating Jesus back in Genesis to confuse their language. And now mercy is doing a new thing. He was limiting their ability to rebel against them. And centuries later, he comes around to those nations. And by his mercy, he clarifies God's word for them. Of course, these are Jews. They're going to go out to the rest of the world and Acts. The mercy of God. is broadcasting the works of God to the world that is scattered from God. Beloved, God did not owe us one thing but judgment. And yet in His mercy, and and, and, and these nations, including whatever nation we were made up of, for centuries, all they had was God's judgment. They weren't getting His word. In his mercy, he's going to get the world his word. And that's really important because we are only saved by grace through faith. And faith comes from hearing the word of God. And so this is a necessary step. Whenever Jesus died for sinners, he made a way for God to live inside of his people, but also for God to then come and offer mercy and salvation to a world of scattered sinners, starting with the Jews, but then to every nation. The arrival of the Spirit signals the end of God's scattering judgment. That's what Acts 2, 1 through 13 is teaching us. The arrival of the Spirit is signaling the end of God's scattering of sinners. You don't deserve to hear anything from God. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to hear anything about Jesus. Christ's mercy is moving His Spirit to broadcast God's works so that we can hear it. You should marvel at that book you hold in your hands. This is mercy from Christ that required His blood. You should marvel and not be bored with and not be quick to not come to hear God's word explained. They can't believe it. We should marvel at the Spirit's might and Christ's mercy. But verse 13 shows us that not everyone's marveling. There are some who are considered devout Jews who are mocking 
And there may be some here who mock the things of God. And this doesn't impress you at all. You're not moved at all to be thankful. That you actually get to hear in your language about God. And, And so you take all these things that impress other people and you explain it in different ways. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes to clarify, to speak clearly the works of God to people so that they hear it. If that is true, mocking and not understanding and being amazed must be a sign of lostness, of not being changed by who God is of not being changed by what God has said. That only happens to people who are still at the foot of Babel. Who heard God say, this is how you should live your life, and they just don't do it. You may not be seeing fire today or hearing wind today, but you can look around you if you will pay attention, and you will see things that can only be done by God. I just thought about this this week. Friends, How is it that I can visit what we understand to be a dying man's bed, Leroy Tate, and all he's doing is quietly struggling to breathe until I read Revelation 22 to him? And then an hour later, read Revelation 5 to him, and he starts exclaiming, excitement. How does a dying man get excited? How is it that Aunt Mary can face surgery and be happy and prefer to not make it? She was communicating these things like, I'm ready to go to the Lord. How is it that someone can face death and prefer death? How is it that our sister Susan can have a gentle spirit while facing such hardship? How is it this week when Lindsay's going to give birth with all the fears that she may be facing to confess that when she experiences those fears and that worry, it's sin against God that she doesn't want to commit? Isn't that just natural to be fearful? And how, How are these impossible things happening? What does it mean to you? The Spirit of God is at work. Luke is writing to Theophilus, this Greek believer, And it says that he is putting concrete under the feet of his faith. And he wants to put concrete under the feet of your faith. So you can stand on this. And he's telling us this passage, Jesus, yeah, he may be out of sight, but he's not out of power. He's full of power. Look at what the Spirit's doing. Hear what the Spirit's doing. And right now, all of you are hearing about King Jesus. And that is mercy to you. And he's more mercy than that. Leave your rebellion. Leave your sin of ignoring Him and mocking His power and pretending like it's not real power and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. and Believe in Almighty Jesus. My last word is not for mockers, it's for marvelers. I want to speak to the believers here. I want to speak to you and ask you the question from this passage, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with the Spirit's 
power. There's a reason why the mockers refer to wine in verse 13 as the explanation for them doing something they could not, they didn't have the power to do. Because wine changes people. It changes people. It causes them to do something they, can't, they would not, could not do on their own. So when the Apostle Paul turns to believers in, in Ephesus, he says, do not fill yourself with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And when he says, don't fill yourself with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he says, because you need to do something with your words. You need to thank God, and you need to speak the truth and love to one another. Because if you're filled with the Spirit, that's what the Spirit gives you power to do. So don't be going playing with other powers that don't have the power to do what Christ has called you to do. And it is to spread the works of God to the world around you. So be filled with the Spirit. The main question I, 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 I want to ask you, though, is do you treat the Spirit like He's powerful enough? calling you to be filled with the Spirit so that you would have power to do what Christ calls you to do, which is spread the works of God to the world around you. But my question is, do you treat the Spirit like He's actually that powerful? And and to get more specific, what do you do when you are afraid that when you tell the truth to that specific person that they're going to mock you? What do you do? Do you think the Spirit gives you power to do it? Does the fear of man misunderstanding you or mocking you, which is what happens here, there are people who misunderstand and mock. What influences you more in what you do with your mouth? Is it the fear of man or is it the fire? The I'm going to give you power. I don't need your power. I'm going to give you energy. Pentecost provides the power for God's people to fill the world with God's praise. Do you know that power? The Spirit of Christ broadcast the works of God to the world. Oh God, we pray that you would cause us to experience your spirit. Thank you that the first thing these people do when they get the spirit is speak of you in the midst of misunderstanding, in the midst of mockery. They speak of you. And they're speaking of what great things you've done. And what we'll see next week, Lord, is... It's what you've done in Christ. We pray that fear would not be more powerful to us than the fire of the Spirit. So would you fill us? Prevent us from being like the people of Babel who strategize together to disobey you. Fill us with your Spirit that we might fill our world with your praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.